I don't know if you saw Miyoko, you know, got, you know, effectively kicked out of her own business and is a pioneer. And, you know, that, you know, that gave me more conviction about bootstrapping the business because you see someone who, you know, really when people ask me like what products always blow you away at a show, it's, you know, hers because, you know, she, she didn't take like some random protein isolate and create something. She took cashews and she made it taste incredible even for someone who's not a vegan and no matter what the situation of her leaving the business is, the fact that it was not a pleasant one is, is really sad to, you know, see someone who, you know, has her name on so many products, you know, lose that. Um, yeah, it's, uh, the, you know, difficulty of investors. Welcome back to winning at work. It's season three, the podcast for the food and beverage and CPG world. I'm Jennifer Lee, Tony's new marketing sidekick and creative guru. I'll attempt to keep him on track as we discover the ideas and strategies behind all these different, better, and special brands. Oh, good luck keeping me on track, but I am really stoked to have you on the team, Jennifer. Your background in marketing and SEO and socials, we are going to have so much fun this year. We're going to be discovering the new brands here in 2023. It's all about functional, good for you, lifestyle brands. Those are trending. Those are the products that are gaining market share and really pulling away from those old legacy brands. We're going to have each and every one of those brands down on the podcast to talk to us, to share their ideas, their inspiration. So you, the entrepreneur, so you, the food and beverage and CPG professional can take these new ideas in and incorporate them into your business and into your life. Oh my gosh, Tony, I'm seriously so excited. I feel like I learn so much just from listening to older episodes. Well, that's why we're here. And if this is your first time here, I would recommend, look, go back, take the five episode challenge, pick a brand, pick a CEO, an entrepreneur, dive in, listen to what it is that they're teaching us. If you love the content, subscribe. We hope you're along with us for the journey each and every week. By the way, do you have a favorite brand in your market you would love for us to amplify on this national platform? Reach out to us on LinkedIn and stay tuned for this week's episode. Hey, it's Jennifer. We get it. Everyone hates hiring. Inspired by his guests, Tony created a novel talent acquisition program that attracts the hidden candidate market, the 70% of people that are not actively applying to jobs. Click on the attract link in the show notes to watch a demo. Welcome to Winning at Work, everybody. I hope everyone is excited for what I call pre-spring. That's kind of what it feels like. I'm in the mountains of North Carolina, and it looks like we're going to hit 75 degrees here today. So I'm pretty excited. I do know there's going to be more winter coming because that stupid uh, Puxatani Phil, he saw he saw his shadow. So I guess we've got a little more winter coming. As we head into spring and summer, I feel like business kind of heats up a little bit, right? And as we go out and we sell and we're trying to increase our market share, get our brand out there, we want people to sample us, right? I mean, we're in the business of food and beverage. We want people to sample us, give us a try. And we pride ourselves on our, you know, our finished products. And 
when you are developing and creating your company and you're fine-tuning your product, one of the most important things you look for is a partner. The last thing you want is someone who treats you just like a transaction. We hear a lot about that in uh, co-packers. There's lots of kind of layers in the supply chain where you just kind of feel like you're you're not really being treated kind of as you would want to be treated or how you're trying to treat your end customer. And when we talk about building companies and building food and beverage brands, you've got to have the right ingredients. You've got to have the right sourcing suppliers. And recently I had the pleasure of meeting Iran Mazani. No, wait, I just butchered your last name. Yeah, it's going to be difficult. Mizrahi or Mizrahi, whichever one you want. Mizrahi. Yeah, that's it. No relation to Isaac, but Mizrahi. Okay. (laughs) I love starting a podcast destroying someone's name. No, I really, I tried. Um, And (laughs) I I tried. I tried. You're the CEO of Ingredient Brothers. And, you know, we really had such an interesting conversation. I thought I really wanted to have you come down and talk to us a little bit about your company and how you, you know, how you see the food and beverage landscape through the lens of sourcing ingredients and trends and trying to smooth out, you know, all the problems that people have in global sourcing. Obviously, there's all kinds of inventory management issues, regulatory compliance, and you're kind of right in the middle of it. And I thought, you're the perfect person to come down and talk to us. But before we get started, I just want to let people know you have, I think, an unusual background. In fact, not that you went got your uh, MBA from Columbia, but you went into Deloitte. You became an auditor. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was a finance. finance right. Guy. I mean, it's it's not as uh, as linear as that, which is you know I think that there's a. Um, it looks from the outset, especially if you look at my LinkedIn profile, to some extent that you know this is a finance geek who, you know, jumped and made a and made a and made a spring leap to to the food industry. I mean, you know what you know. Some one of my, uh, you know, claims to fame is that I actually dropped out of college in in my first year, much to my parents' dismay, to to attend culinary school in South Africa. And so, food has always been a passion of mine and uh it was uh you know incredible experience to go to culinary school and you know have that time to really explore explore the industry from that perspective but realize that um i was a lot better at numbers and using creativity through numbers than i was in uh in cooking and creating recipes and so i went back and you know studied finance and uh you know, did join Deloitte and I had an incredible experience there and was able to, you know, to grow within the organization. But you know, when once I came here for my MBA um, and just realized the size and the amount of opportunities within the food industry here, it was, uh, you know, I you know, feel very grateful that I got that opportunity. And you know, because I actually went to Columbia thinking I'd go into finance, and coming here really opened my eyes to to some of the uh, you know opportunities within the food space. And so, as soon as I got the opportunity to make a leap and join a startup, I did, and and you know, got my feet wet. So when you went to Plated, was that considered a startup at the time? Yeah, I'd say it was considered a startup at the time. I was employee number 30. I think I joined just before their Series A. We were a very small operations team, so we were still figuring a lot of stuff out. And, you know, we were, you know, you know, every day was very different. We could have been at the warehouse helping pack boxes or, you know, trying to figure out an ingredient emergency. So it was it was re- it felt really early on in, in the in the history of the company. Would you say that's really where you were kind of exposed to the importance of ingredients and sourcing? 
Yeah, that was, you know, that was where I'd say the first inkling of the idea for, or not idea, it's not a unique idea, but the first inkling for starting Ingredient Brothers came was, you know, as we started to mature as an organization and really start to understand who our partners were and, you know, what what value were they bringing to, to us as a business and how were they going to be part of our journey as we scale, we started to identify, you know, gaps and, you know, really an opportunity to align ourselves with suppliers that would give us the ability to, you know, scale and maintain quality and also improve margin and, you know, be able to support, you know, the growth of the business at a competitive price, which, you know, is is always a challenge. Yeah, you just hit on a lot of the topics that I know we're going to be getting into because if you pick a product that's too scarce or not sustainable, you're trying to scale, now you've got to start over. Yeah, that's uh that's hugely important. And then you went to nuts.com. I'm not that familiar with nuts. Oh, nuts is a great company. Um, I hope some people are listening from the company and hear that. The nuts is amazing, amazing business. It's a 90 year old business. It was founded by the CEO's grandfather who came through Ellis Island in 1920, I believe, and then started the company in 1929. And it was taken online in the early 2000s and, and built a really great business around, you know, sourcing really, really high quality ingredients and, you know, focusing on, you know, just extreme level of customer service and quality. And so joined, I joined them in 2017 um, and soon after became the COO there. And it was, you know, an incredible experience to see thousands of products being sourced um, by a relatively small team and, and how we were able to maintain the quality. And, you know, a lot of that was, you know, built on long, long relationships where, the, the family had been friends with their suppliers for, for many, many years. And so sometimes it felt almost like an easy job to get some of the highest quality ingredients. But um, it was, you know, um, an, uh, you know, life-changing experience, especially through COVID where the business transformed and we were faced with um, obviously the impact of the pandemic and being in, you know, most of our staff were in New Jersey and having to balance the responsibility, the responsibility we had to our customers and the responsibility we had to our employees in trying to, you know, maintain safety, but also, um, you know, using it as a way to, you know, really deliver to our customers at a time when they needed. And, uh, you know, I think 2020 really, really was a life changing experience for me and, and, and for the for the company. So how did you get the idea to launch Ingredient Brothers? And then tell us just a little bit about the, the company, the brand, what you're trying to create and build. Yeah. So, you know, Ingredient Brothers, the idea really stemmed from, I think, if you put the pattern together, many different, um, you know, things that have happened in my life. You know, I have the, my dad is an entrepreneur. He moved from Israel to South Africa and started an import business. And so maybe I've been surrounded by, you know, the import trade my whole life. And then having come to both Plated and Nuts, uh, both my co-founder and I, we have very similar background. We saw just um, a huge amount of white space in, you know, specifically the importing of ingredients, the ability to bring, um, to close the gap between customers and, you know, the manufacturer, the the person who's actually producing the goods and try and improve that relationship. And so, you know, whenever we went through a sourcing project, um, you know, throughout our careers, we realized that there was just you know, a lot of room for improvement in communication, a lot of room for improvement in the regulatory aspect of it. And then, you know, just a lot of room from a strategic perspective of being, you know, 
an extension of, of, of a company and helping them, you know, work through supply chain issues and sourcing issues because most companies don't have the resources to really spend the amount of time that we can spend in developing relationships with multiple suppliers around the world and then dealing with all the complexity of importing those products into the U.S., well, and that's why it's kind of interestingly when people go to your website, they'll see. I love the icons you have. You have the picture of uh, Lady Liberty, you know, headquartered in New York City, but you've got a global team. It would make sense that your team is dispersed. Yeah, that's been a you know a huge advantage for us as we grow the business, and I'd say is uh, you know probably a, a product of of the pandemic. I don't think I would have. I don't think my eyes would have been open to remote work and to building such a global team from the outset. But, you know, we've managed to build a team that spans the world and we have people in multiple different time zones. And, and, and you know, that gives us 24 hours a day access. Um, and so we're able to really, you know, run with projects. And so when, you know, I'm going to bed, my team in the Philippines is logging on and they're, you know, going through their supply chain projects and, you know, syncing up with custom, you know, suppliers in Sri Lanka and China. And, you know, when we wake up in the morning, there's like a great handoff of, of information and that allows us to be really, vers- you know, really agile, really fast. And it also, you know, from a cultural perspective, you know, having people from all over the world solving global supply chain issues really brings creativity. And it, you know, it's, you know, from a personal perspective has also been really rewarding and has been the surprise for me as, you know, growing the business has been the people side of it. I didn't, when my co-founder and I modeled the business, we laugh now. And, you know, in terms of how we predicted our growth, both from a number amount of pounds we would be importing at this stage as well as the number of people we'd have on the team and we have a much larger team because of the because of the global team that we have and that's been you know just the most fun and i think uh, you know we continue to want to hire and grow the team so that we can experience the you know the sharing and collaboration that we have today and you know there is such a, a trend it's really more than a trend it's this idea that you want to have a diverse workforce of of ideas and people. And when you're sourcing ingredients from around the world for products of infinite variety, it really makes sense to have people in country of origin. I mean, it it makes more sense to me that you would have people that could maybe understand and source better by being in country rather than being remote. Yeah, 100% agree. And I think that, you know, a lot of our products, you know, coconut comes from Southeast Asia. I mean, obviously, it's grown in in South America and India and and a a number of other places. But a lot of our products come from Southeast Asia. And we, you know, having a team there and having them have the ability to go, you know, visit factories and exactly and sample it and taste it. They know exactly they, they know the difference. That's what I'm getting at. I think that's what's fascinating. Correct. Yeah. And it's it's not just a once-off, right? We have people close by that can do this multiple times a year, and it really gives us a, you know, what we think is a competitive edge. So I know your your business model in general, you you have this kind of bootstrap mentality, but you've also got some kind of interesting philosophies that you mentioned to me, and I'm hoping you can just kind of share in general one of your many philosophies, if you will. Yeah, so I think obviously you you touched on one, which is that we're trying to bootstrap the business. Um, you know, I think that that you know being able to do that, you know, you have to acknowledge that that you need to be in a position of some privilege. You know, we've had both my co-founder and I have had you know a good career up to this point, and we were able to, with the help of some you know family, you know, some family help, be able to bootstrap the business, and that 
that you know that ownership and being able to um you know have a more direct say in the future of our business and and us i think in the long term will pay off now i know that we're not a cpg brand where you may need to scale capital at a much faster rate than what we you know what we intend to scale at which you know will allow you to gain market share and do things that you know we don't necessarily put value on but um, as a bootstrap company we're able to do things um, slightly different and and maybe you know instead of the thing i always say is instead of having you know venture capitalist as our biggest stakeholder in the business you know we we're trying to position ourselves as having our employees as our biggest stakeholder in the business and how do we how do we actually bring that to light? And so that's been, you know, that's, you know, a, you know, been a great philosophy of ours, but also, um, you know, we, we are in a position to make that decision, which I think is important. And I think some folks aren't in that, you know, position to not take outside capital, but I, you know, if, if you can bootstrap, uh, you know, and you do love what you do, like the thought of someone trying to sell my business right now is not, not where I am mentally. And so we're not taking on capital. So that's, I'd say one philosophy that's um, been important for us. And then the second is, you know, how we run the business and how we achieve our goals. You know, I think no matter how big the organization is, um, you could be two people, you could be a hundred people. I think having a, a framework for setting objectives and key results, and it may not be the exact framework that Google has or anyone else has, but, you know, coming up with a simple framework for, allowing yourself to align on short-term focus um, around key variables and key financial metrics or key company metrics that you want to achieve in, you know, let's say the next quarter or the next, you know, six months gives the team the security they need to work and move as fast as they can and also frees up time for the founders to, you know, think further along, right? I feel really confident that my whole team knows what they need to work on over the next three months. And they're all super aligned and very focused on getting the job done to do that. But then my responsibility is to then, you know, put my heads above the clouds and say, okay, well, how do we now look further down the line? And I think sometimes, um, you know, that's a struggle for for founders and, and, you know, people try and achieve way too much. And it's great to try and take on a lot, but it's it's really hard when you execute everything at 70% you know, for, you know, my philosophy is rather execute three things really well and get those things done and move on to the next versus taking on five things and realizing you just don't have the resources to achieve those things and then having to replan and reforecast and replan and reforecast, which leads to, you know, I think a lot of unhappy employees in the long run. Right. Because you don't reach anything to fulfillment and for you, you know, your money, your time resources are being spent and you're not getting the full result you want. So I think that's Correct. great. Three, you know, three big rocks, OKR, if, as you call it, and um, get everyone focused on that. Now, as we as we kind of shift into a little bit more about kind of how, how the business works and kind of the challenges that brands have, that supplier, you know, dealing with suppliers and trying to select the right ingredients, just in general, what are the big trends right now that you find you mentioned coconut. Are there any other big trends, ingredients that there's a, a big, big push for? Maybe some challenges on the horizon trying to find them? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of 
um, key themes that are happening in the CPG space is probably themes that have happened for for a very long time that are you know l- you know leading to certain trends and certain ingredients. And so you know the one big thing that we're consistently seeing is that people are trying to get rid of all the allergens out of products. And so you know product that we're very uh, bullish on is cassava. I think cassava is a very versatile, highly sustainable ingredient. And you know the uh, cassava flour is close to mimicking a, a regular baking flour and it comes with all the benefits that you can think of, right? It's gluten free, it's sustainable, it's allergen free and, you know, the price point is, is pretty good. So, you know, we see a lot we see a lot happening over there. The other trends that we, you know, consistently see is um, adding a healthy aspect to certain products, right? So, you know, you've got a product that you, you know, you want it to taste good. It may be a little bit indulgent, but how do you give it that little twist that gives a little bit of health, you know, health appeal to a consumer. So how do you add chia? How do you add a little bit of protein? How do you add, um, you know, some other, you know, aspect, maybe it's an adaptogen that, you know, brings with it a little bit of a health kick or a health, you know, centered focus, but at the same time is still indulgent or still hits on all the flavor profiles that you expect from, um, you know, some, you know, a product that you would eat on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, those are some of the things we're seeing. Um, obviously, coconut, we're, we're very passionate about the coconut. Again, it's a sustainable product. You tend to see the coconut, um, you know, in the plantations where the coconuts are grown, other crops are grown. So there's a ton of regenerative stuff happening. And the, you know, just what the coconut can be used for is just, uh, you know, it's an almost endless number of things. And so it's a pretty incredible product that, you know, we continue to try and pound the pavements and, and, and push as much as we can. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I did actually discover like a coconut sweetener. I was really surprised that that was coming from coconut. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you think about the coconut, um, things that people don't think about is that the outside fibers of the coconut, right? So, you know, when you're, when you're talking about a coconut water, those are young coconuts. And so it's the green coconut with a hard shell. Those typically are used as just water. And then, you know, I'd say the meat of the coconut is generally even disposed of for some of the coconut companies. And, but if you are, you know, procuring a mature coconut, like, you know, you can use the husk for fibers that is gets used in a variety of different products. You can then use the meat to create desiccated coconut that goes into baking. You can use it to make creams and milks. And then, you know, you've got um, a whole bunch of other things like oil. And then to your point, like coconut sugar, right? You can use this app and they make sugar. And I mean, you know, you get a, you know, a really, really great coconut sugar that can be used in sweetening products, you know, and there's a great alternative for, for, uh, you know, regular, regular cane sugar. Have you found there are certain countries that do a better job with producing coconut? Yeah. I mean, I think every, every country tends to have their specialty. You know, we, we do a lot of uh, work with Sri Lanka and we, we've seen, you know, that the King coconut out of Sri Lanka has a really great sweet flavor in the coconut milk. Um, you know, both Sri Lanka and the Philippines um, do a great job in coconut oil, um, you, you know, Indonesia. And, and I don't know everything about coconut. And like I said, coconut's <laughs> this is not the coconut in, podcast. In many just... different countries. So I don't want right, to be right, misquoted right. On, on, on where it no, comes from. But, no, no. you know, it's, you know, again, like the reason why we, we started the business is that it's super fragmented. There are so many manufacturers around Southeast Asia, South America, India that are doing an incredible job and, and it's 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 our job to find those suppliers and manufacturers and, and give them a voice, right? And give them a path to doing business in the US, which is you know where everyone wants to play. So Iran, a brand comes to you, they're 
going through whatever process they are of growth or innovation or trying to scale. Talk to us about really how you try to work with a brand. This might give another brand an idea of how maybe they should be trying to work with their suppliers and partners. Maybe walk us through that that process. Yeah, so I think obviously the first thing is we want to understand, you know, what are the core claims and um, attributes that they're looking for in a certain ingredient and in their product. So if you know if they're if they're already an established product and they're sourcing um, an ingredient and they've already achieved some scale, then they usually have you know are able to answer like the basic questions on the spec that they're looking for, maybe even the country of origin. And then we try and you know go a little deeper into you know what are some of the other things that they you know have struggled with or are looking for us to solve now. You know, while we're selling to a brand, in the end of the day, our you know our customer is the buyer, and and you know the buyer on a day to day basis is thinking about supply, is thinking about price volatility, is thinking about shelf life and freshness and consistency of quality, and so we try and understand you know how is their supply chain designed today, how often are they running production, how are they buying the goods today, what is the type of volume that they're using, and where is it coming from, and so you know. You know, that gives us a blueprint for, you know, what their supply chain looks like. And then we kind of sit back and say, okay, using this as the blueprint, like where are some of the things that we can, you know, go deep and help them achieve? So if it's on price, which is the obvious one that a lot of people, you know, want, you know, assistance on is, okay, you know, how do we work with our manufacturing partners to give them access to to better pricing? If it's on, you know, inventory management, if they've had issues where, you know, they're always, you know, their current supply is always running out of stock. Like, how do we provide them transparency into our inventory program so that they know at any given time, like how much inventory we have, what's on the water, how, you know, so that they can feel confident in our ability to to supply them. And then, you know, a lot of it, comes also down to like the QA and the regulatory stuff. A lot of people forget about this. And, you know, I've had many suppliers who will send me this amazing sample and it looks incredible and the price looks amazing. And then I ask for like 10 documents and I don't get anything back. And, mm-hmm. you know, that to me finds it's very frustrating. And so a lot of the work that we do is is on onboarding our suppliers and making sure that we go through rigorous due diligence to you know, check those documentation so that when you ask for them, we have them and we can answer the questions that you have so that, you know, from a QA standpoint, you feel really confident in in the product that you're, you're buying from us. Yeah, you mentioned that there's this trend in functionality. Everyone wants to have a product and then they want to add that plus, the functional, the healthy benefit. Yeah. And with that, people are adding, as you said, adaptogens, nootropics, and so on and so forth. But you get into the regulatory space, or a lot of the small startup brands, they, they want to try to bring those qualities and traits to the brand, but yet, you know, it might not be falling within the regulatory guidelines. So do yeah. you, how do you help a brand through that kind of, you know, they want to market it. But yeah, I think I think it's a that's a great question. And it, it's something that, you know, we're not perfect at. And it's, you know, that's a, you know, definitely you have to work hand in hand with the brand. And the thing I, you know, say is like, if that is the angle that they're taking, and, you know, they're putting a lot of focus on that one specific thing that you're trying, if it's either to, you know, bring in a product that maybe doesn't have the QA standards that, you know, they would need to achieve at scale. So how do we then work with, 
a manufacturing partner to get them to believe in the vision of this this business so that they can invest the money and the capital to you know you know improving the standards that they have to ensure that they can deliver a consistent product that meets the food safety guidelines and obviously that's on the regulatory side and then on the on the claim side you know i think that's where we're not as you know we don't deal as much in that but i think you know again like giving giving as much support as we can to give um, you know, educate the the company on you know what are some of the things that they may or may not be able to uh, to claim based on what we know. But again, I think you know those things. As soon as you get to that legal line, that's where we we tend to say you should probably speak to someone. <laughs> you need um, to talk you know, to an attorney. Probably talk to an attorney to make those claims. We don't we don't want to we don't want to stand by anything that we say. So I think you know for us it's about if if people are bringing forward exciting new ingredients that are coming into the market that you know, maybe don't have a mature supply chain behind it, um, you know, how can we partner with them to, you know, partner with the manufacturer to, you know, build, basically build a roadmap for them to get to a scale and to a, you know, process that will allow them to supply into the U.S., um, you know, with confidence. So when it comes to commercialization issues or, you know, working with uh, brands that are getting too sophisticated, how do you kind of help them through kind of seeing that um, that bottleneck, or I guess maybe even showing them the bottleneck is is the issue? Yeah, I think showing the bottleneck is a lot of the times the issue when you're you know talking to smaller companies that um, sometimes start off with a you know bill of materials and a list of ingredients that all are complex for some reason. And that already, in you know, to some extent, spells, um, you know, slow down in the ability to commercialize and get to scale. And so, you know, I try and, you know, you know, pick a lane with them, right? And it's how do you work together to understand, like, where the what are the things that you're going to stand behind and really take a stand against, and you know, push forward, right? To the point that I made before about, you know, if there is a product that may not have a really robust built-out supply chain and you want to help support that and grow because you really believe in that product, that's, I think, really great. And I think that that makes sense. But as long as you don't have 10 of those that you're working on, um, you can you can build a business around that. I think the challenge comes in where you have a really extensive list of ingredients and almost everything has, you know, maybe supply constraints or limited supply or, you know, inconsistent quality or high price volatility, it gets really difficult right. to support, tariffs and so on yeah, and so forth. To support to support a company through growth. But if it's one, you know, one or two things and they've really focused in on something, like that's where it gets exciting. You know, I think that that's where you can, you know, you know that like eight out of the ten ingredients are easy, turnkey. You're able to provide them with great consistent supply at competitive prices or at least show them what that price and that supply will look like as they scale. And then it's the two strategic ingredients that you're going to partner with them to to work on. So if a if a brand was or a, a buyer was going to the market and they were trying to identify a new supplier, do you have like a, I don't know, a quick hit list of like here are two, three, four things you should look for when you're trying to find a supplier? Yeah, I think come to us. That would be my <laughs> thing to recommend, right? Well, well, of course, but and if you and if you don't find what you're looking for with us, I think you know a, a couple things that um, really make a difference is you know one, it may sound 
like the least, you know, it is the most important, but it's the hardest to measure is communication, you know, and sometimes you may find a supplier that on paper has all the QA, all the samples that you need, their capabilities are amazing and, you know, their pricing even comes back okay, but their communication is terrible and you're not able to get orders out or they're not able to give you transparency and inventory. That can, you know, block your business and be a huge hindrance. And the onboarding process for suppliers is extremely long, right? If you're onboarding a new supplier into your co-man or into your own manufacturing facility, you know, there is a lot of documentation and onboarding that has to happen just to get them through the door. And so you want to make sure that you're finding the right partner. And so communication is a great barometer for, you know, what's this customer, what's the supplier going to look like? And then obviously you need to go through and build your due diligence checklist. Like what are the things that are really important to you? Um, you know, 100% number one is the regulatory stuff. Like make sure they have all their QA documents lined up and reviewed and in a standard, you know, and you're able to get those without needing to email 25 times, you know, number two, you know, really understand their, um, you know, their capabilities when it comes to this ingredient, if they're not manufacturing it, understand like, you know, is this something that they're bringing in on a regular basis? Do they have relationships with manufacturers? You know, have they had any quality or supply issues? Um, you know, what, you know, what percentage of the business are you going to be making up of, of theirs, um, you know, when it comes to this ingredient so that you can gauge, um, you know, where you stand with the supplier. And then I think, you know, it, you know, price, price is important, but, um, you know, in this industry, it's, um, People do hold price close to their chest, but if you do enough research and you phone enough people, you can start to triangulate where price should be. And I think that should be an afterthought. You know, once you um, once you identify where the market is on price, then you can start to identify who's going to really be a good partner with you as you grow the business. I'm glad you said that about price because people that always shop on price. It's a little frustrating when you're trying to offer something of higher quality, or maybe you've got the transparency, the better communication, all the due diligence is there, right? Easy to get all the QA. You know exactly where the products are coming from. And yet all they want to do is harp on price. Um, it kind of, that really tells you a lot about who you're working with as well. Look, I love the, just the overview. I think it's a great way for, for brands to kind of think about how to go out and look for that transparency, you know, within that supply chain. That would make me nervous if I know I'm scaling and I can't see you know, their inventory, their supply, and their sourcing, that would really worry me. I, I think I'd want to find a manufacturer rather and just kind of cut them out if that's yeah. even if that's even possible. I think I'd even feel more, feel more comfortable there. Um, well, Ron, I think we covered a lot of ground. Um, gave people a, a kind of an interesting look at the kind of, you know, inside baseball really is kind of, you know, how it all comes together. Is there a uh, a best way for people to reach out and, and, and find you guys? Yeah, I mean, easiest is, uh, you know, my email is run at ingredientbrothers.com. You can send me an email and I'll forward it along to the right person. I mean, that's, you know, definitely the best. We're on LinkedIn. We're pretty active there and uh, we'll be at Expo West and we'll be at the National Restaurant Association show in May and we'll be at Supply Side West in November. So, you know, there'll be a number of opportunities to come meet us and, and have a conversation. That's great. You know, um, I would imagine you, one of the benefits of your business is lots of uh, delicious samples. 
Yeah, I mean, my wife sometimes complains because <laughs> why we're in a small New York, well, we're oh, in a small like, New York closet, and there's only so much you can do with uh, 50 kilos of cassava flour that's uh, taking up taking up a lot of space. But but yeah, we, we you know we get a lot of great samples and uh, send them know. down to North Carolina. I'll help okay. you if you're willing to pay for shipping. I'll I'll, I'll definitely send them down. <laughs> Uh, Iran, great talking to you, and I encourage everyone, yeah, head out to uh, Expo West uh, and uh, you know check check you guys out. You're on LinkedIn. What about socials? Do you do much there on other socials? Is it that probably is not really your space? No, right? yeah, we're purely B two B, so a lot of uh, yeah, you don't really need to be yeah, on everything B2B. we're doing is on on LinkedIn, yeah. so we're not we're not on on the TikToks and the Instagram. That makes sense, and that's one less one less thing you have to manage. Correct. Well, Aran, <laughs> great to talk to you again today, and it was a pleasure. Uh, looking forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much, Tony. It was wonderful. Thanks for having me on the show.